Hey, if you're a workplace coach or work in HR or anyone working with challenging conflict situations at work, we've created a coaching method that any coach can learn. The goal of New Ways for Work Coaching is to help employees or whoever is taking it to learn personal relationship skills for productive relationships. Essentially, it gives employees a chance to learn new skills and to change before big decisions are made about their employment. Sometimes they're just lacking skills and New Ways will teach them. If you'd like to know more about it, we offer our New Ways for Work coaching training two to three times a year. And these trainings are a combination of on-demand, which you can watch 24-7, and Zoom training with Sherilyn Knapp and Bill Eddy on the on-demand portions. You'll find the link for this in the show notes below. Sign up at highconflictinstitute.com forward slash upcoming dash courses or email us at info at highconflictinstitute.com. Welcome to It's All Your Fault on True Story FM, the one and only podcast dedicated to helping you identify and deal with the most damaging humans, people with high conflict personalities. I'm Megan Hunter, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Eddy. Hi, everybody. We're the co-founders of the High Conflict Institute in San Diego, California. Today's episode is exciting for us as we have our very first guest, Dr. Todd Grande, author of a brand new psychological drama slash crime thriller called Harm Reduction. But first, we have a few quick reminders. Here's the deal. We want to hear from you. Have you dealt with a high conflict situation? Been a target of blame by someone? Or maybe you simply dread seeing that person again, but you probably have to tonight at home or tomorrow at work. So send us your questions and we just might discuss them on the show. You can submit them by clicking the submit a question button at our website, highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast, emailing us at podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or dropping us a note on any of our socials. You can find all the show notes and links at highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast as well. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review, and please tell all your friends about us. Telling just one person that you like the show and where they can find it is the best way you can help us out and help more people learn how to address high conflict people. We appreciate you so very much. And now on with the show. In this episode, we take a slight departure from our regular discussions on high conflict people. And instead, we have the unique privilege of introducing you to our first guest on our podcast, Dr. Todd Grande, whose book, Harm Reduction, was recently published. Now, if you're thinking that a book by this title was written for mental health clinicians, that would be incorrect. Although, you know, they're welcome to read it and would, it would probably be very helpful for them. But it's actually a work of fiction. It's a psychological thriller involving a therapist, a serial killer, and a detective. It takes you deep into inside the psychology of the characters. My publishing company, Unhooked Books, had the honor of publishing Dr. Grande's book along with his nonfiction, Notorious series, which we'll be talking about at the end of the episode. 
So if you've watched Todd's videos on his YouTube channel and his he has this amazing YouTube channel um, called Dr. Todd Grande, which, by the way, has 945,000 subscribers as of today. And here's a little hint for you. If you go subscribe today, you'll help him reach a million subscribers by tomorrow, December 31st. So if you, wa- if you watch him on that, you know that he discusses the details of various news events, court cases, celebrities, serial killers, personality theory, mental health, and a lot more. His channel is very popular as evidenced by its very swift growth. Uh, Dr. Grande has a PhD in counselor education and supervision. He's a licensed professional counselor of mental health and a licensed chemical dependency counselor. So with that, we want to say welcome, Dr. Grande, and thank you for being on our show and congratulations on the release of your book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As you know, it was a huge effort to get it from your brain into the reader's hands. <laughs> um, and we're really grateful to all the people that helped along the way. And I'm, I'm sure you spent many a late night writing this fascinating book. So let's get to talking about it. So the first question is basically, what is the book about? So, yeah, so the uh, so harm reduction is about mostly about three characters, uh, a mental health counselor, a uh, detective, and someone who turns out to be a serial killer. Uh, and it kind of features a few different time frames, but uh, primarily in, in one where we see a counseling relationship develop between the counselor and the serial killer. But there's some backstory uh, that kind of supplies perspective for that. And then kind of some other uh, philosophical and developmental components that occur with the counselor as she's going through this experience of treating sort of uh, the serial killer. The main characters are Jenny Ocean, Rhea Winston, and and Sam Longford. And, you know, you, you really nailed the characters individually. And then the weaving together of their interactions, which are, of course, driven by their personalities and motivations. Um, so why did you choose these particular characters? Each one I mean, comes from a different place. So, you know, I've always had an interest in true crime, and I have a number of videos I've done specifically on serial killers. Um, so that was an area I was familiar with. They're kind of a, a fascinating group. There's not really that many of them, uh, but there are characteristics. Um, you know, we see common characteristics across many of them, uh, even though you know they don't talk to each other and they're unrelated. So there's there's something ideological there that. Uh, can be studied and, and maybe we can figure out kind of what leads to their behavior. Obviously, I'm familiar with the counseling field and I've seen many situations where counselors, uh, supervised counselors that have been in tough circumstances, uh, especially around dealing with clients who engage in criminality. You know, do they, you know, can they alert the police? Can they alert uh, a victim, you know, due to warn, you know, what are their obligations as far as confidentiality? And, you know, with the true crime, of course, with the police, obviously, they're uh, a main player in uh, most every true crime case. Sometimes they do a good job. Sometimes they don't. And I wanted to kind of unpack the uh, mental health and personality characteristics characteristics behind that role as well. And then how kind of it interacts with, with Jenny, the protagonist. 
I love what you just you said a minute ago about uh, the serial serial killers don't know each other, and it just, just kind of made me laugh. Thinking, yeah, they don't have a, like a Facebook group. <laughs> I bet so, it would be very popular if they did, though. <laughs> I'm sure it would. Yes, <laughs> it would be a very very uh, have a lot of followers. I'm sure. So we talk on this podcast a lot about. Um, personality disorders, and you know, Bill Eddy is is an expert on on personality, and, and as are you, Todd. Um, with your main character, one of your main characters, Rio, being a narcissistic serial killer, of course, that fits nicely into our focus. And it's just really interesting for me to have both of you here as. You are personality experts, and this isn't just my opinion. It's it's shared by many. So I've been waiting to get you two together for a long time to hear you discuss personalities. So let's talk about serial killers, the narcissistic kind. Um, is there another kind? Uh, well, I think I mean to some extent they're all they're all somewhat narcissistic, um, and you know primarily psychopathic or sociopathic or factor one psychopathic and factor two psychopathic with uh, Rio in particular. Uh, I threw in something from cluster C family as well, kind of a, a little bit of an obsessive compulsive personality uh, because um, we've seen many serial killers over the years that seem to have that connection to very rigid thinking, very rule-based legalistic thinking. Um, and you know that's a little more expanded with with Rio uh, to kind of accentuate those features, but um, I think that kind of, in his case, only adds to the dangerousness. It only uh, kind of propels the narcissistic desire, and in the psychopathic kind of emptiness, the void kind of forward, and you know his motivation becomes very easy to access. You know, I've always thought of. Uh, killers or serial killers as psychopaths within the sociopathic or antisocial uh, personality disorder. But it seems to me that they also have a lot of narcissism. And it makes me think about the um, the crossover that's often mentioned as the malignant narcissist, who's a narcissist with sociopathic behavior, paranoia, and sadism. And I wonder where that kind of falls into what you've observed. Yeah, it's interesting. The relationship between narcissism and psychopathy is interesting because they're, you know, these constructs are very difficult to measure, even though there's thousands of studies that have attempted. Uh, there's not always great agreement about how to separate out uh, the cluster B family of disorders uh, or personality uh, traits, like the not only the antisocial, the narcissistic, but the borderline and the histrionic. I think, you know, one could look at it and say, is this really, you know, is a serial killer born of, or, you know, do they come about because of they've moved so far into the depths of psychopathy? But the little bit of narcissism that everybody has is then permitted to run free. So is it like a gate that's dropping down and they're just, it wouldn't matter how much narcissism they have, whatever it is, it's um, unrestricted, res disinhibited. Or do they happen to be psychopathic and have elevated narcissism? Um, I tend to think it's the, it's the latter, right? And probably a number of other 
uh, cluster B features too, right? Like they don't want to be abandoned. Uh, many serial killers uh, have had have been rejected by women, and they take that very personally, kind of like a vulnerable, narcissistic, like an insecurity piece. And they like being the center of attention, and they tend to be shallow, so they overlap in the histrionic sphere as well. So yeah, it's a it's a complex mix of cluster B and probably even some cluster A, like paranoia that we see sometimes in and the cluster C where we see like the dependency and the obsessive compulsive. So, you know, probably most serial killers draw from just about every uh, set of personality features. It's interesting. We're, we're talking about the clusters A, B, and C, and some of our listeners may not be familiar with those yet. We've focused with talking about high-conflict personalities on cluster B, but all three of these are diagnostic uh, titles that have separate diagnostic criteria in the manual for mental health professionals. And personality disorders are still really a brand new thing to most people. I think we're where we were 50 years ago with addiction, alcoholism, and other substance addiction or substance use disorders. And so it's it's an unfamiliar thing. So I just want to mention, at least my interpretation is cluster A is really people who are kind of you know, steer clear of people. So schizotypal, schizoid, and paranoid, that that kind of keeps them to some extent away from people. Cluster C seems to be people that mostly avoid conflict, like obsessive, compulsive, avoidant, and um, dependent. But cluster B, the one you're really talking about and the one we talk a lot about in this series, is the ones who seem attracted to conflict and they they like high conflict and they like dominating people. And a recent study I read said cluster B basically is associated with domineeringness, vindictiveness, and intrusiveness. And that, I would think, would fit the characters that you study, and Megan and I talk about them in relationships and in the workplace and as neighbors, but it's kind of like cluster B on steroids is what you're looking at. Would, would you say that's a realistic characterization? Yeah, I think, I think cluster B is certainly the most, uh, it's, the, it's the dominating family of personality traits in, in serial killers. I think there's some other ideological components that allow the person to access, you know, to the cluster be a little bit more. I mean, if, for example, somebody with borderline personality features is typically fine if they're not in a romantic relationship. So not, not all personality characteristics are active at all times. Somebody with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, if they're totally getting their way, they're usually fine. It's when people start doing something they don't approve of that falls outside the rules. And if you look at like schizoid or schizotypal, generally if they're left alone, they tend to be very productive in work environments and, and they're fine. I mean, so in a sense, personality is kind of unusual diagnostically because it's largely activated through relationships, whereas other mental disorders in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, can, you know, their symptoms are, are 
can manifest alone. You know, somebody has uh, traumatic symptoms, hypervigilance, can't sleep. They don't need someone else to to ex- express symptoms. A substance use doesn't require other people. You know, arguably some other offenses would need like a victim, right, of the person to qualify. But but generally, those disorders can exist when somebody's isolated. The personality features get activated through relationships. So I think with serial killers, they bounce through a series of relationships that are you know, kind of like a pinball, but they're always kind of being uh, sprung in a direction that leads them into a, a more antisocial and dangerous frame of mind to where it becomes increasingly desirable to uh, start committing murder. Makes sense. But the, but most people in an office or in a marriage don't need to worry that they're with a serial killer because the numbers we're talking about are very small, correct? Yeah, it, it's a very unlikely confluence of, of circumstances. It's something that's made even increasingly difficult now thanks to like video cameras being everywhere and people recording everything. It's, mm. uh, I mean, you know, when, when uh, looking somebody like uh, Hillside Strangler or Ted Bundy or Dahmer or the early days of Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, they had, um, you know, forensically, they didn't have to worry much in terms of getting caught unless mm. they were caught in the act. You know, somebody took a picture of their face or they left a fingerprint or something. But now with, you know, cameras and, uh, of course, DNA, that would be the other big difference, which is how D'Angelo was caught. It's very tough for the pattern that they typically exhibit to persist for too long. You know, if you look at like uh, Gary Ridgway, he had a span of decades where he he murdered women. Mm. Uh, that would be you know impossible or very unlikely these days. So it's interesting. We're seeing in some ways more high-conflict behavior now, but it sounds like hopefully less serial killing because of today's technology. Um, it, it enables people to send horrible emails and to post negative things, but I guess maybe impairs uh, a murderer. So that's, I guess that's a little encouraging. Yeah, I would imagine, I mean, you know, one theory of criminality is that when you block off one crime, the criminal, you know, the criminal mentality doesn't change. It just goes to another crime. <laughs> like, uh, you know, something becomes impossible, you know, like if car theft became impossible, the same people that would steal cars would go steal something else or do something else. So, yeah, I mean, anybody who would be a serial killer but decided against it because they would get caught is probably still a horrible person to interact with in many environments. So they're addicted to crime, essentially. I think a serial killer is addicted to sexual domination. Mm. I think that, um, I feel like that's what drives most of them. And there's other ways to fulfill that desire, not necessarily homicide, like exclusively. Uh, Other types of um, criminal and I guess even, you know, consensual acts might satisfy that need. So they can redirect and, and, in that direction, but they're still, they still maintain that, you know, I think dangerous component, especially when you add in the impulsivity along with that kind of homicidal urge. Yeah. And back on the, uh, the technology piece, um, there's kind of a, a flip side, right? So you could imagine potential serial killers going on a dating app 
you know, to meet women, to lure um, women in, <laughs> women or, or men, I suppose, and um, using technology to do that, um, which, you know, using those dating apps, you just don't get the vibe that you, you know, your, your brain is meant to get when you're in person um, that might warn you of danger. So you have to kind of look for other things. And I'm not sure that that's what people are looking for when they're on um Tinder. Right? So I, I don't think we're, we're expecting someone to be a serial killer. But then on the flip, flip side is, yeah, there are all these really great, you know, pieces of technology that that can record things like, uh, for example, the, the Teslas record everything around them on video. Um, so it's really hard to commit a crime around a Tesla, right? It's interesting you brought up the dating because... Uh... There was a serial killer named Rodney Alcala who was actually on the dating game in, uh, I think it was recorded in like Los Angeles, you know, Southern California. Yeah. It was a popular show for a, a while. And um, he won. Like he was the, you know, it was like three bachelors or whatever. He was the, uh, he was the one that the, the contestants selected. Oh, dear. And when they went backstage, I mean, you know, they met each other, whatever, after the show, however that works. And um, usually that's kind of a happy time. You know, I imagine the typical discourse would be like, oh, I'm glad I picked you. We'll go have fun on a date or whatever. But instead, he was so creepy that the uh, the woman, the contestant who won, decided not to go out with him. <laughs> a wise oh. choice. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was almost certainly a life-saving choice, uh, her, her life. But, uh, but yeah, over like Tinder and whatever else is available now with the the internet, you can't, I mean, she probably wouldn't have known, like she probably wouldn't have had the cues available to make that decision. Right. So the, the upside and and downside of, of technology, I suppose. Well, this, this raises a question I want to put in here. And that is, you said she might not have seen the cues that she saw because she met him in person after the show. Are there cues that people can watch out for if they meet someone like this, um, on the internet and then they go meet them in person and have lunch and decide if they're going to spend more time together? Are there, is there anything that's obvious or is it well hidden? Yeah, there, there are some things. I mean, and again, all these could occur without somebody being a serial killer. But uh, one of the, the common things that people tend to notice early on is eye contact dysregulation. So either someone who kind of stares intensely, you know, like um, the Ted Kaczynski, for example, mm. or someone who uh, averts eye contact, like, the, like a Joel Rifkin, you know, somebody who's not, not going to look you in the eyes at all. I think an early interest in sex in a dating relationship, like very early, like in the first 20 minutes of talking or whatever, kind of stereotypically grandiose behavior. Um, or dominant behavior, uh, like say a restaurant, someone who's putting down the waiter or waitress, uh, who's demanding service right away, who wants the best of everything, you know, like kind of trying to show off. Because even a vulnerable, you know, a vulnerable narcissist will pre- present as a grandiose narcissist over brief periods of time. And dating is one of those times when a vulnerable narcissist will try to be strong and confident. So, you could see that as well, uh, but there's no there's no set of warning signs that guarantee, you know, you've you've run into a serial killer. That's important, I think, for people to know. 
Yeah. So take your time getting to know people, right? And <laughs> maybe don't be in, in uh, dark alleys alone with them at the beginning. You know, Megan and I wrote the book Dating Radar. And on the survey we got, one of the things was the speed of sexuality and sensuality. And so we put in the book that you really want to wait at least a year before you make a big commitment, like getting married, having a child, buying a house together. So I think, I think that reinforces that idea. Serial killers often like to, you know, they tend to have dramatic interests uh, in dating. So, like, they're going to want to move very fast. Yeah. But then again, there's a whole other class of killer that would not function on a date at all, right? So, it's <laughs> if, <laughs> if, you know, a, a Rodney Alcala and a Ted Bundy, you know, much different than uh, like like a Dahmer or like, um, uh, like a Joel Rifkin or a uh, David Berkowitz who are, like, really socially awkward. Are there serial killers who are are not socially awkward and use kind of a laid back approach to uh, in, in the beginning to kind of lure the person in, like like oh I want to be careful and cautious of of you, like from their perspective they're they're giving that message to their potential date. Yeah, I mean usually they're not that sophisticated, but um, certainly I mean that's that's possible that they that they could look at other people's behavior, like on television, the movies, and kind of mimic. Um, what they think they should be doing, but you know, one of the one of the other big warning signs that I'll mention is the kind of the lack of empathy, and mm. that is something that you know, if somebody cannot feel what you're feeling, but, you know, or cognitively understand what you're feeling, that's a very bad sign. Not necessarily, you know, again, a serial killer, but it's just a bad sign that they're probably not great at romantic relationships, and that's something that can be tested. You know, like you can ask somebody, you know, what do you think I'm feeling right now? Or, or, you, you know, looking at another couple across a movie theater or restaurant, what do you think they're feeling? You know, they're talking to each other. You know, somebody who's psychopathic um, and highly narcissistic will not, grandiose narcissistic will, will generally not understand. And somebody who's vulnerable, you know, vulnerable narcissism uh, might um, misinterpret. So they, they, they can sometimes, because there's cognitive and affective empathy. So they sometimes have the cognitive empathy piece down, but they still make uh, misinterpretations about the meaning. So they're, they're still filtering it through their ability to feel, which is distorted. Interesting. Yeah, we talk about lack of empathy a lot when it comes to, you know, uh, our definition of high-conflict personalities. And, you know, they, they, it may be a person who can can have empathy, um, perhaps, you know, maybe someone with, with borderline personality, but when they're in an upset state, there's just no empathy for the other person, right? Yeah. Well, I think too, it's, it's about, you know, it's self-centeredness as well. Like you can, you can know how somebody feels cognitively, uh, and not, and not care. Mm. And I think that's largely what happens with, with psychopathy is it's, there's a willful indifference and and narcissism to some extent as well, where they might get it, but they're so indifferent, it, it doesn't matter to such an extent that they're not going to act on it at all. So you know, huh. functionally they have no they have no empathy. Interesting. So when you wrote the character Rio Winston, your your serial killer in harm reduction, is he kind of an amalgam of different serial killers or did you just put different personality traits together or kind of what was your 
direction. Yeah, there's definitely some serial killers out there who kind of offered, you know, their stories offered inspiration into that character development. I think uh, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, just the high level of caution, I would say conscientiousness that he used, which was, I think, probably more conscientious than any serial killer who's notorious that I can think of, uh, to the to the point where, in terms of the forensic you know, police investigation, he threw them off with with planting clues and like he he thought through a lot. Uh, one time he left tire tracks uh, disposal site by accident, so he threw away all the tires and bought new tires, which I've never heard of a serial killer huh. doing. So, kind of like what happens when somebody who's highly conscientious also has no empathy and wants to be sexually dominant. Uh, but there are other, I think, other killers that kind of woven there as well. Uh, certainly Joseph D'Angelo and Richard Ramirez, both home invaders, which is actually pretty unusual among serial killers. Most serial killers try to catch people in the open, kind of out in public, not necessarily invading a house. So that was factored in. Uh, a little bit of the uh, deceptive nature that we see with the Hillside Strangler, uh, Kenneth Bianchi, uh, who fooled mental health professionals for a long time, convinced them that he had what they used to call multiple personality disorder, um, now called DID. So yeah, I took pieces of of many, many of the killers, uh, but then also some of the uh, characteristics I've seen over the years on the obsessive compulsive side and kind of how people rationalize bad acts regardless of what the the bad act is and how no matter what roadblock they run into they still manage to find another rationalization so you you discover that they really have a desire to to commit the crime and the and the logic that gets them there they fabricate as needed hmm. interesting um, I read a, a review on uh, one site that uh, a reviewer said, um, I, what I really love about this book is that some authors would have written this in the first person point of view from Jenny's perspective, but I'm glad Grande didn't. His way gives the story more objectivity and insight, which Jenny just didn't have about herself anyway. She had some, but not enough like a flashlight's dim glow because of low batteries. <laughs> I love that last part. Anyway, I'm wondering, you know, how or why you chose against writing it from a first-person point of view from Jenny's perspective. I think in a way it was like a big progress note, right? So, you know, when you you treat clients or supervise counselors, you're writing in this kind of objective third-person point of view where you you don't really believe anything, right? You're you're just noting what you're observing and you kind of reserve any type of clinical judgment for when you have every all the information together so uh, the first part of a progress notes really you know just just observations and that can include you know distortions that people are putting out there uh, you're not saying they're true but you're noting what they're saying you're noting their their thinking uh, flawed or not so I wanted to contain kind of all those aspects and have a good point of view for when Jenny and Rio kind of pivoted, you know, in the book, or, you know, the point where they kind of pivot in different ways. And I wanted to make sure that uh, that was, that was something that was available 
kind of third party that 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 people could watch and maybe even kind of predict it uh, to some extent as they're reading. It's a unique approach, and I, I really like that approach. Um, what inspired you to write a fiction novel? Uh, we'll talk about your nonfiction series here in a minute, but what what was behind this? There's a lot of books out there, a lot of fiction books out there. They're very good that they cover uh, true crime. But having read uh, so much on the topic, I felt like there was some nuances and and even some major themes that were really kind of glossed over or just not directly approached. You know, as as somebody might look at a gap in the research literature, I saw a gap in the fictional literature. So I just I wanted to fill that with something that. I think didn't shy away from the kind of depraved side of of killers and the and the high level of distorted thinking. You know, m- many killers are kind of featured as very logical, like uh, Dexter mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Hannibal Lecter. Well, Hannibal Lecter is nothing short of supernatural. He's very unrealistic. So it, they're fascinating characters, and they're very well written, to, to be sure. But there's something, there's a realism that's missing from kind of the, the well-known fictional serial killers. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Um, what would a mental health clinician learn from this book? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that was a little bit of a surprise on you. Yeah, I think it's anxiety-provoking. I think, I don't know about learning, but I think it would be a little anxiety-provoking. <laughs> you know, what, what if I, you know, end up, seeing a client who's a serial killer i think as long as they don't have a secret about you you're probably okay (laughs) yeah well that's it you know you know clean living right that's one thing they could learn but i think um just maybe recognizing their own biases like like jenny seems so uh put together in one sense you know getting a license and going to private practice but so deeply flawed in another sense with her terrible secret and a history of drug use. And so, you know, maybe, maybe just an opportunity to kind of look at one's behavior and, and recognize what biases might be carried on. Uh, sometimes also in, you know, counseling, it helps to look at extremes. And certainly the, the behavior in the book is quite extreme as compared to what any counselor is realistically ever going to see. In practice, mm, yeah. So, so, having been a therapist, I don't need to worry about reading this. It won't uh, shock me uh, too too seriously. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it'll damage any therapist. But uh, okay, I, I think for a new, I, mean, I, I think the risk would be on a very new counselor. You know, like um, you know, first getting into it to think, well, you know, how many serial killers am I going to have, and all this. Uh, chances are none, so it's it'll work out. That's good. <laughs> Does that satisfy your curiosity, Bill? Yes. In, in my 12-year therapy experience, I don't think I ran into any, although I did I did meet Betty Broderick at a school meeting when I was talking about substance abuse treatment, and she came because of her two daughters. This is before she killed her husband. So um, I, I, I can say I met someone, but uh, I, to my knowledge, never had any in therapy. Yeah. So, Todd, um, will there be a follow-up book? Because that's what I'm already seeing in the Amazon reviews and, and other reviews is, hmm, we'd like to to continue learning about these characters and how the story continues. I certainly wrote the first one 
with a sequel as a potential. So it's you know mechanically built into the book. There's an opportunity to to build on the story. Well, your publisher approves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I'm 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 very open to it. I have a few. I have a few ideas. That that book took a long time. Well, it took a while to write, but it also it was a long time to kind of put together the major character descriptions and the shifts in the story. So I'm, I'm so there's a whole stage that occurs, you know, before I even write anything down where I'm or, or before I put in a paragraph together where I'm doing outlines. And I have started that. I've started to outline. Uh for me the the organization's a big part of what makes a book work. That's one of the mm. other things I saw in a lot of other books I read is I was frustrated with the way they kind of bounced around without any type of justification to move that storyline. <laughs> it's like just almost like they just ran out of things to say, so they shifted. So uh, I like everything to to uh, flow at a higher level before I can get it to flow at a uh, a, a mid and a, and a detail level. So yeah, I think uh, I think it's certainly possible. I, I I have a few ideas that are coming together. Uh, you know, sequels in movies are always tricky, right? It's always kind of a a pothole. <laughs> yeah, and I want to make be. sure that yeah, you know, I realize this is a movie, but I, I want to make sure I don't run into a, a a sequel error. Well, and that's the next question: is um, have you had any calls from movie studios yet? <laughs> I'd be thrilled if somebody was interested. I think it could drive a pretty good movie. I think it's very dependent on uh, the, the specific casting of of uh, Jenny. Um, I don't know if. The re- I don't see the Rio character as shockingly difficult to cast, and and certainly uh, the detectives not. But I worry about the you know who would play that uh, counselor. That's a very complex character. Interesting. Hmm. I, no one comes to mind right off the bat. So that's a that's a that's a dilemma. But I'm sure they could find someone. <laughs> so. If you love personality theory, you'll love this book. If you love reading about serial killers, you'll love this book. And if you love plot and suspense, you'll love this book. And those are the reasons that I love this book. And I also love it because I, like Todd's almost 1 million YouTube subscribers, trust his expertise and, and you know, his lack of bias, really. Um, plus, he always has these little clever zingers that are very funny and catch catch everyone by surprise. And you'll also see that in the book. So that's a lot of fun. Now, um, lastly, let's just talk quickly about the Notorious series. And this is uh, the first in the series is the psychology of Notorious Serial Killers, which came out over a year ago and has done quite well. It's a work of nonfiction that analyzes various Notorious Serial Killers, many of whom you've already talked about on the, the episode today. Um, so my question was going to be, who are a few that you cover in the book and, and what information you provide about them? But I guess you, you've mentioned a couple. So let's kind of talk more about the structure of the book, maybe about the the um, five-factor um, analysis and what all you include in each chapter. It's kind of the formula that I use for, for videos is similar to what I did, or, you know, very similar to what I did for that book for the chapter level, which is uh, a very compressed analysis that has it's all detail rich it does not just kind of uh, linger on and carry on just the facts that are, that are necessary but also some of those details that add um, to the story and then then a meaningful analysis uh, and the five factor model uh, 
uh, is kind of my favorite way of conceptualizing personality. It's far from perfect, but I actually think it's the best model available. And certainly there's the most research behind it. And um, it's based on five, uh, what's called the big five traits, uh, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Uh, Largely pathology is explained on neuroticism. Uh, not entirely, but that's the that's the one most associated with uh, mental disorder. And the the other traits, uh, you know, they can they explain characteristics, and you know, we see they're relatively stable throughout the lifespan. So, you know, openness is people are high in openness or intellectually curious. They tend to be you know, liberal, creative, invested in fantasy. Low tend to be kind of more traditional and um, grounded concrete conscientiousness somebody's high in conscientiousness they're going to be having you know good work ethic and be on time and be organized and if they're low it's going to be the opposite extroversion is a pretty well-known personality trait probably the most famous uh, where you know somebody who's high in extroversion sensation seeking talkative friendly outgoing uh, they tend to be optimistic and people who are Low in extroversion, sometimes it's called introverted, tend to be analytical, keep to themselves. They tend to kind of recharge energy-wise when they're alone, as opposed to an extrovert that seeks out people to for energy. Uh, agreeableness, high in, people are high in agreeableness, are very trusting and altruistic, uh, and maybe a little gullible. People who are low are skeptical. You know, they're like critical thinkers and scientists, and you know, more likely to get in arguments. And then neuroticism would be um, depression, anxiety, anger, vulnerability, inability to resist temptation. So very high on neuroticism is is considered unhealthy just because people are suffering all the time. But very low is just as bad because that's where you find people with no empathy and who are not moved by human experiences, are not moved to compassion. Hmm. Now, the next two in the Notorious series is the psychology of notorious church killers and the psychology of notorious celebrity deaths, which both come out in 2022. Both are already receiving attention for obvious reasons. What What are those two about? Well, that's it's the same formula, in essence, where, where I'm analyzing uh, mental health and personality factors, except with figures from, you know, who, who are notorious for, for different reasons. Uh, like uh, the church killers, uh, you see, um, you know, these like spiritual gurus that have built cults and <laughs> people like that, uh, you know, like the, the Marshall Applewhites, Jim Jones, David Koresh. And then with the uh, celebrity deaths, uh, you know, tragic um, deaths, right? So, you know, not people that died from natural causes, but talking about tragic, usually young deaths, uh, like musicians and actors and various people who, for whatever reason, could not compensate with developing fame and wealth. So those will be out in 2022, and we're pretty excited about those. So thank you for being with us today, uh, Todd. We are really, you know, it's been an interesting and fascinating discussion about your books and about 
serial killers especially. So uh, if you're looking for his books, they're available anywhere. Books are sold in print or as ebooks. And then The Psychology of Notorious Serial Killers is already out and available as an audiobook. So we'll put all the links to his books and his and to his YouTube channel in the show notes. And uh, remember to go subscribe to his channel, get him to a million. <laughs> so remember to rate and review us and tell your friends and colleagues about us. It really means a lot to us. The next episode, we will again be joined by guest, a retired judge, Honorable Karen Adam, and attorney Annette Burns, who is a member of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers and past president of the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts, who together with Bill developed a six-hour video series wherein they interviewed 16 leading domestic violence experts. Um, this is especially applicable to family law and divorce, but it's really helpful to anyone who is wanting to know more about domestic violence and relationships. So you won't want to miss this two-part interview. And until then, curl up one of, with one of Todd's new books and enjoy a great read. Enjoy every day as you work toward understanding humans and infusing those around you with calmness. It's All Your Fault is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Wolf Samuels, John Coggins, and Ziv Moran. Find the show, show notes, and transcripts at truestory.fm or highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Our show.